You're listening to the N2K Space Network. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. The U.S. Government Accountability Office, or GAO, was established over 100 years ago. We've spoken about it a few times of late. Its main purpose when it was established was to check the legality and adequacy of government expenditures. In 2004, GAO's legal name changed from the General Accounting Office to the Government Accountability Office. The change reflects the agency's expanding role in a growing federal government. Moving beyond financial audits, GAO began conducting performance audits, examining how government programs were performing and whether they were meeting their objectives. NASA has come under scrutiny of the GAO of late, and now it's the Federal Aviation Administration's turn. Today is December the 11th, 2023. I'm Alice Carruth, and this is T Minus. GAO report finds FAA mishap investigation process wanting. SDA says current budget indecisions have put projects on hold. Egypt signs on to China's International Lunar Research Station. And our guest today is Anastasia Proznia, CEO at Stellar Amenities. Stay with us for Maria's chat with her at the second half of the show. Now on to today's intelligence briefing. Mishaps are a regular occurrence in space operations. I've personally seen hundreds of small launches in my previous roles and I have guesstimated about 10% end up in a Cato. That's a catastrophe after takeoff. Catos, along with other mishaps, which can include anything from engine malfunctions, fuel system problems, management and procedural problems, manufacturing defects and vehicle control often trigger an investigation of course by the launch team to understand what went wrong, and also from the Federal Aviation Administration, or FAA. Although the FAA can investigate a mishap itself, it's been found that it's always opted to authorise the launch operator to investigate under agency supervision. Now the Government Accountability Office, or GAO, is looking into this process and found that the FAA doesn't have criteria to determine when to authorise an operator to investigate its own mishap, 
nor has it evaluated how effective its investigation process is. According to the GAO report, the FAA has taken some steps to improve mishap investigations, such as contracting for independent reviews of some operator-led investigations. However, the report found that the FAA has not evaluated the effectiveness of its operator-reliant process. Most stakeholders told the GAO that they support the FAA's investigation process, but some have expressed concerns whether operators can credibly investigate their own mishaps. The GAO concluded that without a comprehensive evaluation of its mishap investigation process, the FAA cannot be assured that its process is effective, especially given the expansion of the commercial space operations in recent years. And yes, that flight cadence is going up and with it, so are mishap occurrences. FAA data shows that 50 commercial space launches from 2000 through to mid-January of this year resulted in mishaps. This represents about 12% of the 433 launches during the same period. Thankfully, none of these resulted in serious injury or death, which would also include other agencies. The GAO is making two recommendations to the FAA. Number one, develop criteria for determining when the agency will authorise a launch operator lead a mishap investigation on the agency's behalf. And number two, comprehensively evaluate the effectiveness of its mishap investigation process. Remarkably, the FAA has agreed with the GAO recommendations. We will see how this affects current mishap investigations, such as SpaceX's Starship mishap from last month. The Space Development Agency is the latest to acknowledge that the current budget standoff in the US is having an immediate impact on their work. SDA Director Tarek Tornier said last week that the agency has already put some projects on hold due to the ongoing continuing resolution, which pauses spending at fiscal 2023 levels. Tornier said during a National Security Space Association webinar that, quote, the biggest thing that we could ask is for predictability on the budget, passing the budget so that we can continue to move fast. Right now, we can move as fast as we can, but uncertainty in funding will put a break on everything, so it's a big problem. The continuing resolution expires on February 2nd, 2024, but should not have impact on the agency's tranche one launches. And we've included a link to further reading on the Space Development Agency's warfighter tranche layers in our show notes. The Combined Space Operations Initiative Principles Board known as CISPO, met in Berlin last week to address space security. The annual event brought together DOD political and military space leadership from the US, Australia, Canada, France, Germany, New Zealand and my native United Kingdom and also welcomed three new members, Italy, Japan and Norway. The 10 members of CISPO discussed opportunities to further advance both operational cooperation and information sharing for the space domain. According to a US DOD press release, representatives emphasise the need to continue to promote a rules-based international order and responsible behaviour in space, while collaboratively addressing challenges to the safety and security of space-related operations. Space Force General Charles Saltzman said of the meeting that this coalition of like-minded nations enhances our ability to address the complex challenges we collectively face in space. The US Space Force has activated its newest service component to be headquartered in Germany. Ramstein Air Base will be home to the US Space Force's Europe and Africa, known as Space 4 Europe AF, 
under the command of Space Force Colonel Max Lance. Lance previously managed the US military space capabilities in Europe and Africa as part of the air component, US Air Forces in Europe, Air Forces Africa. Space for Euro slash AF is now the fourth service component embedded into one of the US military's regional commands, joining US Central Command, US Indo-Pacific Command, and US Forces Korea. Egypt is the latest country to sign on with China for their planned International Lunar Research Station. The heads of China's National Space Administration and the Egyptian Space Agency signed the cooperation agreement to work together on the lunar station, which is expected to be up and running by 2035. According to the Chinese Space Agency's website, the two countries will work together on the lunar station's design, related space missions, the development of space systems, subsystems, facilities and ground-based segments, as well as talent training and capacity building. And staying with China, the commercial reusable rocket, known as the Hybola-2Y, held its second successful test flight this weekend. The spacecraft has been developed by Beijing's Interstellar Glory Space Technology Limited, known as iSpace. It reached an apogee of less than a quarter of a mile and then returned back to Earth. The next version of the rocket is expected to have its first full test flight in 2025. NASA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the National Space Foundation and the U.S. Air Force have signed a Memorandum of Agreement for Space Weather Research to Operations to Research Collaboration. This Quad Agency Agreement outlines the responsibilities for collaboration across the federal government to enhance the U.S.'s preparedness for space weather, the environmental changes caused in space by the constant outflow of solar wind from the sun. Like all good scouts know, you can never be too prepared, and that definitely applies to space operations. The United Launch Alliance held a wet dress rehearsal at Cape Canaveral this weekend, ahead of their planned December 24th launch. Cryogenic propellant loading operations took place on both the Vulcan booster stage and the Centaur 5 upper stage to simulate a launch day and test the rocket and pad systems. All looks on track for the Christmas Eve mission. As for the other mission that we've been anxiously waiting this month, the launch of the X-37B space plane, we're still hoping at the time of this recording that we will see it lift off on the Falcon Heavy this evening from Florida. If you were on the East Coast yesterday, then you know that weather forecasts were not favourable for launch, but it's looking like a 70% chance that today will happen. The liftoff window is a narrow 10 minutes, which opens at 8.14 Eastern time this evening. And if you haven't heard enough from today's headlines, you'll find links to further information on all the stories that I've mentioned in today's show notes. And you'll find them as well at space.n2k.com. I've even added a few opinion pieces for you. One on why we shouldn't trash the space station. Another which links to a draft charter for a circular economy proposed by Mohiba Jar. And the last piece is on why 2024 will be an epic year in spaceflight. I, for one, can't wait. Haiti Miners crew, every Monday we produce a written intelligence roundup. It's called Signals in Space. If you happen to miss in any T-Minus episodes, this strategic intelligence product will get you up to speed in the fastest way possible. It's all signal, no noise. You can sign up for Signals in Space in our show notes or at space.n2k.com.
The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Now, Paul Maria is out with Manthu today, courtesy of her dear husband, but she recorded today's guest for us. I'll let Anastasia Prosnia explain what she does as the CEO of Stellar Amenities. My name is Anastasia Prosnia. I am um, founder and CEO of Stellar Amenities. Uh, we are developing a space health solution for astronauts, and specifically we are focusing on Improving autonomous decision making of astronauts, and um, and uh, in a nutshell, we try to minimize the reliance on mission control, so they can make their decisions faster without too much communications. Especially, you know, it's important when we are talking about the Moon and Mars missions. That's where it's going to be super critical. But it's also really useful in low Earth orbit uh, operations where you don't want to ask. Always like where is now? Where is that? To where is like how do I solve this problem? And so the way we do it is that we we access uh, data from the past missions and the environmental data of the spacecraft to drive insights in real time. So let's talk a little bit about how you're going to do all this and and where you got the ideas for that. It's fascinating. I'd love to learn more. Yeah, thank you. Um, I studied urban planning as an undergrad, and then I got into airspace uh, architecture, specifically designing space habitation. I worked in Houston uh, with astronauts and um, NASA's um, specialists, NASA GSC specialists. So while I was getting master's in space architecture, I realized that there's many, we talk about launching rockets to space, we talk about humanity in space, we talk about like all this infrastructure, like the bricks we need for sustainable future of humanity in space. Yet there's not so much of attention paid towards um, how humanity ourselves, like how we going to live there sustainably, meaning like how we make sure that we don't get sick, how we make sure that our bone, like we don't lose that much of a bone loss, uh, I mean bone, so we stay healthy and I, I noticed that, like, while NASA is doing an amazing job addressing, uh, like, developing guidelines, developing, like, the research on that, there were no really commercial uh, partners or companies really working on that. And I and I was questioning why. So I was, like, once I graduated with my master's, I wanted to find a job that I can work specifically on, like, space health problems in commercial settings, yet I couldn't really find anything and it was 2019, so it was almost um, one, like three and a half years ago. And I decided that I first, I, I since I was a designer first, I thought that aesthetics and performance of spacecraft is always, a, uh, sorry, performance of astronauts, it's geared towards how well the interior design of spacecraft is done. And so that's where I started Stellar Amenities. I first started as a service uh, provider to airspace uh, companies, space habitat providers to outfit their spacecraft with um, like hardware products such as, you know, sleep garments, such as 
galley and everything. Uh, but then the last um, 10, 10 months, I pivoted to uh, more of a software solution because we realized that Microfounder and I, we realized that we need to have um, more of like holistic view in terms of like, okay, it's not just the hardware that we need to develop. But first, we believe that we have to develop the backbone that supports uh, human performance in space. Yeah, so I, I was looking at, you mentioned earlier, and I was looking at your website also, it sounds like AI comes into play here, which, yeah, it's a buzzword, blah, 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 but it also does really cool things. So Because you, you alluded to some of that as well in terms of that performance optimization, which, you know, for an astronaut who is so busy, every minute is allocated, that makes a big difference. So tell me your thoughts on that. You know, I feel like astronauts are the ultimate knowledge workers. You know, we were really surprised that the GPT, by the way, went online a year ago. I think that's when the humanity has changed a lot. It's been a year. Uh, we've been having AI accessible to everybody, pretty much. And um, I feel like astronauts, probably the, the people that mostly like they need AI the most and AI meaning not AI that's something that is making decisions on their own as it's an assistant that like uses the data of the past mission so it doesn't come up with their own like ideas how to rule the the world or like how to operate the spacecraft it's like really it's a data-driven approach it's almost like if astronaut had the access to, of data to access to other astronauts' brain, you know, like it's, it's pretty much what we're creating now is the network of astronauts' brain because they have this really unique knowledge. Um, <laughs> the way you put that is really cool. Putting <laughs> <laughs> into something that is accessible by astronauts, both space mission planners and uh, mission control. Yeah, I think it's, it's super valuable, especially as we're talking about the astronaut hour costing $130,000. It's a lot of money. It sure is. Yeah. So, and, and you mentioned also the being able to make, I don't know if I'm phrasing this correctly, but autonomous decisions when, especially when there's a huge time delay or, or, you know, not able to access mission control, maybe because they are physically unable to contact them at that time. That is uh, a huge change from what we often think of as being as tethered to a mission control on, on Earth. Um, the potential there is fascinating, honestly. Yeah, I... I just can see that how this tool, it's its almost like the way I think about it is that we talk about humanity becoming multiplying their species. But the, truly, the, the true notion of becoming multiplying their species, meaning that we can live separately from Earth. And of course, you know, we need to have suppliers, we need to have, but eventually, you know, we will be able to derive everything from in-situ, like everything that is local. And then for astronauts to be able to operate efficiently, and not just astronauts, astronauts is our first users. The the, the next users will be anybody who is going to space, you know, and it's a, it will be taking longer than astronauts to use our product. But still, like, in, if you think about, like, 10, 20, 30-year timeline, that's where I see, like, every citizen that will be living in space will be using our platform. But yeah, you will not be able to... Because space, like airspace industry, is such a specialized knowledge and spacecraft is such a complicated machine. I believe that the first missions to Mars will be made up of minimal number of people, to be honest. It's not going to be many people, and especially like even 10 years, I don't believe there's going to be huge colonization. 
there's going to be only a handful of astronauts that have really specialized knowledge. But it's still going to, I believe we have do, we do have limitation of how much we can know. And then we do have to tap into, you know, the books, the readings and stuff. And normally astronauts do it. They go into handbooks and read it. But it takes a while, you know. And we so what we try to do, we're providing semantic search through the, through the documentation. So instead of just searching for a specific knowledge in a specific chapter, then you, you can ask a question and then it will be searched. It will search the answer throughout the um, the system. That makes a lot of sense. And that's uh, semantic search is just fantastic and what it's opening up. I can imagine in a situation where you are very far and unable to contact anyone else, you need that assistance very quickly too. Where are you with this right now? How is it going? Uh, I got a really best co-founder in-house. Uh, we met just three months ago, but we've been working closely on the product itself. Um, uh, we went through Starburst Accelerator before. We went through a few programs. Um, but basically, the biggest acceleration that we got on so far is really getting to customers and talking about their needs, like developing actually the features that they want. Unfortunately, I can't disclose customers at this point, and we're still so early and we're still in stealth mode. We're still, you know, doing user interviews, we're still trying to figure out what's the minimal liable product, uh, the shape of it, although we already have like a few iterations of that. Um, but we also, uh, so airspace, like, Obviously, AI is such a huge topic, and it's there's many problems, including safety and privacy. And uh, we do want to make sure that it's all properly addressed. And uh, one of the biggest problems in the aerospace industry, by the way, uh, in terms of like developing a software solution with, that uses data, is that data is in different, uh, like they're in a different data sets that might not be accessible. And like, you know, say SpaceX uh, launching their own astronauts and then they gather data and most of it is not shared, say, with the public and then it's shared with NASA. And then it's like, it's almost like my biggest job is just really figure out like all this network of relationships. Like, how do you make sure that you actually integrate your product within those intricate networks uh, between relationships of, of uh, companies and uh, vendors and everything? Yeah. I read stories all the time from various reporters in the space beat about how data sharing is such an issue between agencies and private companies. And uh, I, I often wonder about um, what that's going to mean, especially as we advance forward when we need that information shared. But again, also things need to be secure and private, of course. So not a small problem. That is that is genuinely like a really difficult one, but it's a very fascinating one too. Maria, thank you so much. It was a wonderful experience. Uh, for everybody who's listening, I wish you really the stellar time of your life. I uh, Probably my biggest advice, if I can give an unsolicited advice, is to, um, like, wherever you have in your mind, go ahead and pursue it. I had no idea I would work on something like that. And I grew up in Siberia, really, like, and I with no resources. Like looking at my own experience, I think I just had a clear goal what I wanted to do and I just pursued it and I had a lot of rejections. But, and it's still, I'm not saying it's easy now to develop something of what you're developing, but if you truly believe in something, I think that there's no reason to not do, develop something that you really want to develop. We'll be right back.
And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netskope.com. Welcome back. Okay, I was always perplexed by the notion of sound as a kid and was enthralled by the question, if a tree falls in a forest and there's no one around to hear it, does it make a sound? Of course, we all know that sound will travel if there's an atmosphere to carry it, so the answer is yes, but this next one definitely had me head-scratching as an adult. If space junk collides with other space junk in orbit, can it be heard? And if so, can we hear it on Earth? Now, we covered the story last week of the University of Michigan researchers presenting their study on small, or micro-even pieces, of space junk. The clever team found that the electrical burst created at the point of collision can be detected by Earth-based radio telescopes. So guess what? They do make sound, and it can be heard right here on Earth. Now, there's approximately 35,000 pieces of space debris larger than 4 inches, or 10 centimetres, floating around in low Earth orbit, according to the European Space Agency. So it's important to keep track of these things. If you look at space junk that measures smaller than 4 inches, the debris numbers into the millions hurtling around the Earth at speeds that can approach 20,000 miles per hour and threaten operational satellites. So now we know that they make a sound. You know what's going to be added to the list of crazy noises that we think we hear at night. Was that a creaky floorboard that just disturbed my sleep? Or the distant sound of space junk colliding? That's it for T-Miners for December the 11th, 2023. For additional resources from today's report, check out our show notes at space.n2k.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at space at n2k.com or submit the survey in the show notes. Your feedback ensures we deliver the information that keeps you a step ahead in the rapidly changing space industry. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like ours, T-Minus, are part of the daily routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector. From the Fortune 500 to many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was mixed by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester, with original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Jen Iben. Our VP is Brandon Calf, And I'm Alice Carruth. Thanks for listening. T-minus. <laughs>